In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to Jonathan Snook about CSS architecture at scale, design systems engineering, and how to use container queries to build better responsive web experiences. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 43. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry with everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today I'm excited to be here with Jonathan Snook, who you probably know as the author of Smacks, one of the kind of pioneering uh, CSS architecture products out there. So how's it going, Jonathan? It's going very well. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, awesome to have you on here. I've been a big fan of your stuff for many years now. So it's uh, really cool to be able to have the chance to uh, talk to you about some of this stuff. Thank you very much. So I guess uh, maybe for anyone who isn't familiar with you, do you mind just kind of giving a little bit of an introduction and kind of explaining uh, your background and what you've been up to these days? Yeah, certainly. So, um, you know, my name is Snook, um, which is my last name, uh, but it's kind of catchy. So a lot of people uh, just call me that. Uh, I'm a designer and developer uh, who has been developing websites and applications for oh, about 15 years now. Uh, started off doing agency work, then moved into freelance, uh, and then over the past uh, six years have been doing product development. Uh, worked at Yahoo for a couple of years, uh, then on to Shopify, uh, and then most recently at Xero, um, which is a an accounting software company based out of New Zealand. Uh, and then about uh, three weeks ago, uh, I actually quit my job and I'm now uh, working on my own products. Awesome. Anything exciting that you're working on that you're willing to talk about or kind of top secret stuff still? Uh, the well, probably the, the the big thing that I'm working on right now is a rewrite of Smacks. Uh, it's something that I've been kind of working on and off for about a year now, and having you know quit my job, I now have like full days that I can focus my energy on getting this thing written. So I'm hoping to get that done out by the summer. Uh, and then I have a couple other books that uh, I'd like to write and get out there as well. Awesome. I'd be really interested in knowing like um, how any of your opinions on architecting CSS have changed since kind of releasing the first edition of Smacks. It's, uh, I think it's been a refinement over the years. It's not something that has drastically changed where the way I build websites now is uh, completely different from the stuff that I've developed five years ago. The thing that I think has maybe changed a little bit is that there's a lot more people talking about this now. Um, you know, five years ago, there were, you know, the odd conference talks, uh, but there were certainly no books on the idea of CSS architecture. Uh, and there was no just sort of like cohesive movement. Uh, and now, you know, in the, that time, we've seen uh, a lot of people um, talking about it, understanding it, thinking about it, and talking about different approaches. So, you know, we, we see things like uh, Atomic CSS, um, which to me is, is a dramatically different approach to uh, the stuff that I, I promote in Smacks. And, and, and it's interesting to look at, you know, the, the way that's approached and whether or not that's something that I, I need to sort of reintegrate into the stuff that I do, or are they sort of diametrically opposed? And I, I like kind of considering all those things and recognizing where certain things work over other things. Awesome. Yeah, the Atomic CSS stuff and kind of the whole... I guess like hyper utility kind of focused approach that has kind of been, you know, starting to show up and starting to become more popular, I think is, is really interesting and a really, you know, obviously dramatic shift from uh, how people might have thought they should be architecting their uh, style sheets and stuff um, five, six, seven years ago. What are your kind of opinions on that whole kind of utility driven thing? Do you see like a place for it? Do you have any like specific things about it that like you dislike or I'd just be interested in knowing what you think about that whole thing? Yeah, it's um, I mean, there are definitely things that I like about it and things that I don't like about it. On the one hand, uh, it it really does mean that there's going to be a cap to how big your CSS is going to get because um where you're you're kind of looking at these utility classes, uh, you know, where where we have a class for one or maybe two uh, 
actual CSS properties that we're trying to apply to something, there's only so many CSS properties in existence, uh, <laughs> and there's only so many CSS properties that we're actually going to apply to our project. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to have uh, border radius uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and, you know, to infinity. Yeah. We're going to have maybe two or three different border radiuses that we're going to use. Um, you know, we have uh, things like padding and margin where we might have. Uh, you know, 10 and 20 pixels uh, and maybe a 30. Like there's only going to be a few different variations of what we're actually going to see on a project. And so as a result of that, we do run, uh, we sort of hit that limit as to just how many classes and how many uh, CSS um, properties that we're going to have to define. And therefore, you know, most of those kind of CSS files are going to cap out at, you know, maybe 30, 40, 50 K uh, which is phenomenal when you look at projects that you know end up at a meg or two megs worth of CSS that they're trying to uh, deliver over the pipe. Yeah. So I mean that's certainly the the, the benefits that I see with that approach. Um, and so on the flip side, this is then okay. Well, it's moving the sort of the building of the individual. Um, sort of design components to the HTML. Um, it, it means that you're throwing a lot more classes on there to define things. Um, the way Atomic CSS deals with that is, is that it uses a very uh, succinct, terse uh, syntax for actually declaring those properties, which obviously is good, so you don't have these huge class names. Um, so I, I see that as the some of the benefits of it. On the flip side, uh, the things that I have uh, for me that are important are things like design consistency. You know, as we go from one page to the next, is there uh, an established pattern to how things get built? Um, how are things designed? And there's there's not really that cohesiveness uh, that comes through there, so that it would require possibly more auditing of uh, of designs to to make sure that that stuff happens. Um, are there any performance issues of implementing that many classes on individual HTML properties? I haven't seen anybody really do that kind of work. I don't think it's really an issue. Um, no, I, I see the benefits. Um, for me, however, um, you know, I think it, it does come down to the kind of project that I'm building and what I want to do with it. So to, to give you an example, um, I looked at uh, a designer's website who had a relatively straightforward design, um, and they were using uh, one of these sort of atomic CSS frameworks for their project. And, you know, sure enough, their their CSS was only about 30K. And, I, okay, you know, 30K for, for a project sounds fantastic. Uh, but then I thought, well, you know, the design itself is relatively simple. 30K actually still sounds like a lot. Um Whereas, like for my own site, you know, because I've created this sort of hand-coded, custom, uh, you know, bespoke CSS for my particular website, uh, I only have 6K for my project. Um, and again, because it's a blog, it's a relatively straightforward thing. Uh, I've got a homepage and I've got an insight page, and that's really all there is to it, um, as a lot of blogs kind of have. So, you know, it's on one case, you could say, like, that atomic CSS approach kind of sounds good, but... Uh, you know, whenever, and that might be maybe a remark more just on using frameworks over, you know, hand coding your stuff. I I, I like hand coding uh, my CSS. The approach that I normally take is uh, write the CSS for the problem in front of you as opposed to, um, you know, trying to pull in all these frameworks that I feel do more than they should. Um, and as a result, often include more code that just goes completely unused in a project. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's some interesting things to talk about around that. Um, so the first thing, I guess, is do you think that the reason for those style sheet size is just getting bigger? It's just because you have, I guess, like classes in there that are just not being used in your site. You know what I mean? Just stuff that is getting pulled in because you're pulling in this framework and you just don't need half the stuff that's there. That's definitely uh, one aspect of it. You know, there's a lot of unused code uh, in projects. Um you know that you know so if you're looking at okay well here's the design of my site how complex is the is the design um, you know most 
most applications that I've worked on actually don't have a lot of variability in them by default. Um, where things tend to explode in size is when you start getting disparities um, into a project. And um, that was something actually at zero when I first started there was something that was readily apparent was, you know, you, you could have a design that was a fair bit different going from one page to the next Um and as a result of that, like all those disparities build up, um, all the different components on a project build up. And as a result of that, you're having to create more and more CSS to handle every single variation, um, you know, either on a specific design component or uh, just different iterations of a design. If you're not really separating this out for an individual page. And so, you know, you get this project that might've started off at a, a reasonable, let's say hundred K and then kind of goes up to 200 K to 300 to, you know, where you get these one meg and two meg massive files yeah. because there is this, um, this history that has built up. And of course, once you get to that point, it becomes really difficult to understand exactly what's going on within the CSS and within the rest of the project to be able to pare that down quickly and easily. Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems I've run into uh, working on, you know, anything more than a trivial uh, site or application is when you start to have a lot of styles that are kind of like really content specific you know what I mean? Like when you have like, oh, this is my testimonial page styles. This is my about page styles or whatever. And you start to like um, start building like individual styles and stuff that you need for specific things on specific pages instead of kind of looking at it from the opposite angle where it's more like let's put together like a, a library of shared patterns that kind of makes uh sense across the whole application and provide some consistency and then use that as kind of like a source for figuring out how to take what we have and build the designs that we need using the you know patterns and stuff that we've already put into place is that something that you think about a lot or have strong opinions on uh yeah i do it's um and i find that's one of the areas that i often butt heads with uh with designers um and i i suppose that kind of comes across uh like either I'm difficult or designers are difficult. Uh, <laughs> I, it's, uh, uh, you know, because a designer is trying to solve a very specific problem. They're, they're working on the context of a, of a given page and they're trying to make that experience the best experience possible. Um, whereas, you know, from an implementation perspective, I am trying to offset that experience with the experience across an entire application. And, you know, it, it, to me, it would be the same as a designer working on a print piece. You know, are they going to go into it thinking, okay, yeah, I'm going to, you know, have four color with varnish and like all these fun things, or are they going to have to understand that the design for this one particular page may not be in harmony with the rest of the, uh, the, the, the print work that they're doing? Is the the cost of implementing that uh, worth it? You know, when we look at the web, it can often feel like there's no cost to actually having this uh, art direction, this sort of very custom art direction on each individual page. But in reality, there is because every new piece that gets designed. Uh, ends up having a cost, and that cost is in development, that cost is in maintenance, that cost is in delivery to the end user. It's a cost to the end user in you know uh, download and rendering, the kind of time wasted just waiting for stuff to to show up and and render on the page, um, and and that that cost can often be invisible uh, at the very beginning when you're just working on a sketch file. Um, so it's those are the types of things that I, I tend to want to push back on. And uh, and it's something that I've seen sort of time and time again, where, you know, a designer feels like, okay, I, I want this experience. Uh, but in reality, uh, they end up sort of fighting against the system that's already in place. So in, instead of recognizing, okay, well, here is these components that we have. Can we make use of these components? Can we evolve the existing components does it make sense to add these new things like the, the, this is a dialogue that that needs to happen um 
Otherwise, what we do end up with large projects with a lot of complexity that's hard to maintain uh, that, you know, by the end, you just kind of want to just burn the whole thing down and start <laughs> from scratch. Yeah, I think uh, I think it kind of ties into just kind of the benefits of consistency, I guess, and the benefits of kind of trying to limit what you can choose from. It, it almost comes back to like what we were talking about a bit with the benefits of the atomic CSS stuff, where... If you're using, you know, atomic CSS, you don't really have the opportunity to say, oh, this element has a margin left of one pixel. This one has three pixels. This one has 13 pixels. This one has nine pixels. You know what I mean? Those are sorts of, the sorts of things that I find have led to really hard to maintain um, design kind of systems in my experience. When you're, when you don't give yourself kind of a fixed set of choices for, you know, these are kind of like our, our scale for our spacers or, you know, things like that sort of thing. Um so I, th I think it's interesting to, to kind of think about that as a goal, like the idea of being able to, I guess, not like starting from a blank canvas every single time, you know what I mean? And figuring out like how to use the tools that you have in, in the toolbox to get done what you need to get done and striking the right balance between, you know, delivering the ultimate experience for the specific feature that you're trying to deliver, as well as, uh, you know, delivering consistency across the application from the end user's perspective, experiencing it, as well as, you know, on the implementation side and the maintainability side of being able to maintain, you know, a smaller set of rules and not having to, uh, you know, worry about all these different inconsistent things to deal with. That makes sense. You yes. know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It does. Yes. I think uh, one thing kind of jumping back to the atomic CSS stuff a little bit that you mentioned, um, you know, one of the, the issues with that can be like the opposite of what we just kind of described as some of the benefits of it, where if you break things down to such like tiny microscopic classes, you actually end up giving yourself almost more flexibility, right? Because now a button isn't just like a, a button class. It's the combination of a border class, a background color class, uh, you know, whatever. And now you can build buttons however you want and you start to lose that consistency. So um, it's that's kind of an interesting uh, thing to think about, I think, because I've always thought of the, the benefits of that. Like you've said, like being able to kind of provide a fixed set of things to choose from and limit the opportunity that people have to just start putting random values and properties and style sheets for some very specific context that they have. But I can totally see how uh, it could start to go the other way if you take it to uh, the opposite extreme. So I feel like it's kind of interesting, like most things in the, the whole kind of software engineering space in general, where things kind of swing from one extreme to the other a lot and, and neither of them are ever any good uh, but people <laughs> want to believe that like there's a, a right answer all the time you know what i mean so yes. it's interesting to kind of talk about how um you know the, the issues with the extremes at both sides and it's almost like a circular thing where the problem is the same no matter or matter which side you go to so i don't know it's an interesting topic to me yeah it's uh i mean there, there's definitely you know i think we're all still trying to figure this out there, there's not any one you know right way to build a website um you know we we build something we see where things work and they don't work um and and we try to evolve our thinking and uh, i know that you know if i come into a project it, it's funny to look at the way something has been built and usually because of that evolution of process the stuff in that project the longer it's been going on almost feels like you know you've cut down a tree and you can see the rings of development over time <laughs> so you can see this old coding style versus this new coding style because rarely do you do people necessarily go back and refactor uh projects um Although actually one of the things that I really liked about Shopify and their process was that they weren't afraid to to do that, to, you know, to refactor uh, code, to make it better, to make it more understandable, um, you know, to make it more performant. There was um, opportunities that we did that a number of times. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the product as a whole was was better as a result of that. And that, you know, it, it allows you to continue to move more quickly because of uh, just a better understanding of the entire code base. Uh, but I know even like when I left there, there was code that I wanted to get rid of that had been there for, for three years that I knew I just, I did not want to have in that code base anymore. But it's just, you know, that, that layering on of, 
uh, of stuff. And CSS is actually really sort of complicated to to refactor. Um, you know, it's, it seems like such a simple language, but it you know the the moment you have bad code in your CSS, uh, it becomes really difficult to to fix that. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank our first sponsor of the episode, and that is Laracasts. So Laracasts is a de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels, covering all sorts of topics in the web application development space, from uh, getting started with frameworks like Laravel to building complex user interfaces with JavaScript frameworks like Vue.js and React. I think there's over 700 videos on there right now, which is over 120 hours of content. And Laracast actually has a special offer for Full Stack Radio listeners, where if you sign up with the coupon code FULLSTACK2016, all one word, all caps, you actually get 50% off of your first month. So you can get access to 120 hours of content for under five bucks, which is pretty awesome. And I think uh, once you check it out, you'll be hooked. It's probably the best $9 a month that I spend. I always find new stuff there to learn, and it's kind of my go-to resource for any new topic that I'm trying to learn. I'm always hoping that Jeffrey has done a video on something because he does such a great job teaching this material. So if you haven't checked it out, definitely check out Laracast.com and use the special full stack 2016 coupon code to give it a try and get your first month for 50% off. Thanks Laracast for sponsoring the show. What are some of the biggest issues that you've run into with, um, you know, building CSS systems at large scale, uh, you know, places like Shopify and Yahoo and Zero. It's uh, it's often about just getting everybody on the same team. Um, that was something that um, I think at Yahoo it went really well. Um, I, I don't know if I'm just like nostalgic about it. <laughs> you know, just like I've I've now blocked out all the bad stuff, and for whatever reason, I've just got good memories uh, at this point. But uh, you know, everybody at Yahoo was interested in building a great product. Uh, so you had some very uh, talented and skilled uh, designers and developers um, on a project. You know, working with the designers, they were very open to feedback. So you know, if they were trying to implement something that um, you know either didn't mesh or or didn't uh, seem to break away from a lot of the design patterns, they were very open to being able to like discuss it with them and say, well, you know, what about these other possibilities, uh, and being able to iterate on the design in that direction, which is hugely beneficial. And and then likewise, you know, once we had uh, our approach to you know how we were doing with our templating, how we were doing our CSS, um, that we were able to move. I feel really quickly and and it's interesting to kind of hop back into Yahoo Mail and take a look at the source code and you know after uh, a few years since I've been there and still 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 to go back into that and still see remnants of the uh, the implementation that we had so many years ago so I, I you know when I see longevity in that way I feel like it worked and then you know probably more recently at zero um you know, trying to deal with some of the the cultural um, stuff within the company of okay, like we're going to establish a design system, and we need everybody on board with this. But you know, there, there's differing opinions and and different teams in different offices, um, and uh, it required a lot more advocacy to actually get that stuff implemented. You know, it's. Uh, and I think that's one area where for myself, uh, I know that I still have a lot of work to do to understand, you know, how to advocate for a design system uh, so that um, you that, so that the people that are, are using that product uh, and that's essentially it. The design system is a product within a company. Uh, so to be able to, to sell that product well within all the different teams that need to implement this to be able to, you know, say this is essentially the API that you need to use um, or should be using. And here's the benefits that you get from using that API. You know, you do this and this is going to save you this much effort down the road because we'll be able to make these changes and you won't have to worry about it. Um, so it's, it's a lot of that advocacy stuff that I think is, um, for me, the, the stuff that I've been thinking more about lately. Yeah, you wrote a blog post, I guess, uh, pretty recently, I think, about staffing design system teams. 
I, yes. feel, I feel like that kind of ties into this, like um, the idea of having a, a a group of people or a role that's whose kind of responsibility you know, or part of the responsibility, at least, is kind of, you know, maintaining this ability for things to be able to stay consistent and, you know, being responsible for thinking about the trade offs between, you know, designing something perfect for this particular use case versus kind of the long term maintainability of it and the ability of engineers to be able to kind of piece things together out of the components that, you know, the design team has built for them. I'd be interested in hearing you talk more about the idea of, you know, design engineering uh, in general and what that means to you. Yeah, when I um, when I was at Yahoo, we didn't have uh, a design systems team. I think the, the way the design team ran um, made the need for a design systems team unnecessary uh, because all the designers, they worked together and a designer didn't work on um, – a fairly sort of isolated part. Um, in other words, they weren't like, I'm just going to build the the desktop version of this little feature that I'm working on. They were responsible for working with, you know, um, a particular feature across platforms. So they had to understand the, um, the implications of their design decisions across not only desktop, but mobile web and mobile applications. And I think that that sort of cross-platform understanding is hugely beneficial. Um, and then just to work within a design team and a design manager that recognizes that that kind of consistency is important. So managing that consistency across the design team so that everybody was working on the same page. Uh, and that's been different than what I've seen at both Shopify and Zero, where the design team is a, a lot more... Um, distributed uh, where you're you're you have a product team that consists of a product manager of developers of you know one or two designers of front-end developers and they're part of that product team and they're building out whatever it is that they need to build out and as a result of that uh, will find themselves with sort of their blinders on because they're, they're so focused on what they're working on that they start missing out on stuff across what the rest of the company is doing. Um, and so, you know, like the, the result of that is, is that they'll come in to think something saying, okay, yeah, this is a unique one-off that I'm only doing in this one place. And yet, you know, somebody that has a more broad view can come in and say, well, actually, no, I've got two other teams that are implementing exactly the same thing. Um, and I think that was an early lesson, um, actually, even at Yahoo, where when we had first started up, uh, we were... Uh, working on building an autocomplete widget. So the, like, here's this component that we need. And the design team, the, we had our, our front-end developers, uh, one of the people on the front-end team built a prototype of an autocomplete widget. This is what it looks like. This is how it works. When you type this, you get the dropdown um, so that all the interactions were understood. Uh, and so we... You know, provided all these resources to the individual development teams. The the Yahoo Mail team went off, and uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, they kind of came back and said, "Hey, we've now built this autocomplete widget." And it's like, okay, that's. I mean, I understand that there was like a te you know the technical implementation uh, requirement was a little bit different than the stuff that we had developed. So, okay, that's cool. You've now you know built your own autocomplete widget, uh, and then a couple of weeks after that. Um, the you know the messenger team came and like yeah we've got this this autocomplete widget that we built and it's just like okay <laughs> we've we've now you know triplicated the work you know how can we share resources so that we're not each having to recreate everything from scratch um, and so a lot of that process you know the communication that needs to happen was put in fairly early on after seeing these kinds of issues uh, and so you know coming in at to um, you know both Shopify and Zero where uh, you didn't have maybe that as cohesive as a design team, um, or maybe you know the design managers aren't reinforcing a lot of that consistency across uh, the 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 different designers. Then I think that's where a design systems team can really be beneficial because they are the ones then that are looking across the entire system, understanding, okay, what are the problems that need to be solved and how can we develop the design and components so that we have that consistency? Um, 
And, uh, and, and I think actually, I mean, at Shopify, I felt like that process worked really well. And, you know, as the, the front end team grew at Shopify, um, that we were able to implement stuff, uh, much more quickly once we had a lot of that tooling in place. And so coming into zero was, you know, again, kind of going through that advocacy process again of having to teach them, okay, you know, here is one of the benefits that a design systems team has. This is the, you know, all the the bonuses that we can have. And, you know, once we started getting that sort of API in place and hearing a development team saying, yeah, man, for us to be able to prototype something or get stuff into the uh, production was a lot faster having these resources at hand. Uh, so I'm, I definitely see the benefits of having a design systems team, um, although I don't necessarily say it's a requirement. I, I think there needs to be somebody um, or a team of people that understand the entire system, that can understand here is the entire application um, so that you know if somebody is working in isolation, that they can help direct and nudge different designers into the right direction so that you do have this cohesive uh, direction. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Do you have any like heuristics for, I guess, when a team needs like a dedicated uh, design systems team or design engineering team? Like, of course, you've historically been working out on quite large teams, it sounds like, right? Like Shopify is a quite a big company. Yahoo, of course, is a, a massive company. What do you kind of see the breakdown being, I guess, uh, kind of, I guess, on average or uh, generally, like what size team do you think this sort of thing starts to become something you need to think about? It's, uh, I think it's going to depend on the team and the kind of people you have uh, running uh, a particular organization. So at, at Yahoo, I mean, yeah, it was a big company. Um, you know, you're, at the time, I think I had 13,000 employees. Um, but I mean, you're not interacting with 13,000 uh, people. You're still dealing with a lot of often small teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, the team that I was on, uh, when I got there, uh, was a new team that was just getting started, just getting built. Uh, and so it started off, it was, I was the front end developer. There was one designer, uh, and then the design manager, and then it grew from there. I mean, it grew up to the point where we had 30 designers. We had half a dozen front end developers, um, you know, and then we were working with all the individual engineering teams. Um, so, you know, we're working with, you know, up to 200 uh, engineers across multiple products. So it, things do tend to grow. Um, I, I think that uh, at Yahoo, I, I give a lot of credit to the design manager for uh, maintaining that consistency where, yeah, it's a large organization, but having a design systems team may not have been um, as appropriate in that context. Uh, I think between the the front end developers and the design manager um, that there was a lot of uh, rails in place to make sure that the design was consistent, which was fantastic. Um, uh, at Shopify, when I first started there, uh, there was less than 100 employees. Um, and you know, the, the admin product was, there was three designers, um, who also did all the front end code. So, you know, they always tried to hire designers that knew both design and front end development. Uh, and then the engineering team was maybe half a dozen people. So we we were looking at a, a very tight knit group. We were all in one room. We could have these kind of conversations, and uh, again, even when I started there, the one of the the lead designers uh, had a very systems approach to things. Like he could say, "Okay, this is the design direction, and I'm going to be able to apply this across the entire uh, product within a week." And I think that kind of thinking meant that you didn't need to have a design systems team. Um, but, uh, you know, once you, the, the team grew, you know, again, the design team ended up growing to, uh, I mean, the design team as a whole was probably, you know, 50, 60 people where you had designers, content strategists, um, UX researchers and whatnot. I mean, you had a lot of people with a lot of very specialized roles. Um, and we had product teams that it wasn't just, the admin team, which is the way it started. Now you had the admin team and the payments team and the uh, orders team and the products team and, um, uh, you know, all these very individual um, siloed uh, parts of the product. Um, 
and I think once things got to that level, um, you know, where was the the ability to think across the entire system? Um, and that could have come from anybody on the team. Um, so it was something that I specifically advocated for um, after a, a couple of years and saying, okay, like some of the decisions that um, were, were being made may not be creating the the most performant the the most consistent application and, and having an established team will make a difference and so that was definitely something that I advocated for and and getting that team in place uh, I think was was beneficial and and we were able to make some some differences um, in there um, coming into zero they were already over twelve hundred employees so it was already dealing with a large team um, with distributed uh, offices and. Uh, and whatnot. So to, to kind of come into that distributed environment and try to establish more order to that system uh, definitely required a lot more work, um, which admittedly was something that I don't think I was necessarily up to the task for. Um, because I was working remote, I was working from home. You know, it just, that, that it's a difficult situation to be in. Yeah, I can definitely imagine how it could be difficult to kind of like come into an existing environment remotely and have the opportunity to kind of assert some sort of strong opinion about something that needs to change. Yes. Yeah, I work remote as well. And, you know, there's, it's a, it's awesome. I love it. But there's also definitely a lot of uh, challenges um, in that sort of sense, too, especially when it, you know, comes to onboarding and kind of getting people to feel like they have um, uh, a voice that's going to be heard. And it's not as easy as being able to just kind of like start up a conversation and get people's attention around the office and sit down for, for an hour to talk about something, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. I I wouldn't mind diving into something uh, a little bit more practical for a second. Something I think I'd love to get your opinion on. Sure. What is your strategy these days when it comes to styling like one-off components? So I've always, lately I've been trying really hard to kind of um, really emphasize building things that are are reusable as much as possible. And uh, to me, that means uh, a lot of different things, but it, it's, it's thinking about like, okay, this style that I'm applying to this component right now, does this always need to be there? Or can I think of a case where that's going to create a problem? For example, adding a margin to something to space it out because of the position that it's going to be in, in this context, but it might not need that if it's being used somewhere else, you know, that, that sort of thing. And I, I have a hard time, uh, when I'm designing things that are, or sorry, styling things that I know just need to like exist as a one-off thing. Like maybe it's something to do with the layout, like a a sidebar or or something that I know is never going to be reused. I have a hard time deciding like when, when does that deserve like its own proper class versus when should I just kind of compose it out of uh, utilities or, or other components that I have lying around that I could put it together with. Um, how do you manage like styling one-off things and avoiding kind of falling into the trap where you start having a lot of one-off things and now your style sheet starts getting uh, hard to maintain again. Yeah, it's a uh, so what I've found over time is that a one-off might be a one-off the first time. Like th- there's always the first time for something. Mm-hmm. And that first time it's always going to be yeah, I'm just using it in this one place. Uh but what I've found is that designers once they see a pattern in one place uh, you know, they see this this concept that they think, oh, you know what, that actually solves my problem in this other area, and those things start to get used. Um, and so even though it's only being used in one place, I treat it with the same sort of respect and level as any other uh, sort of object uh, or module that I'm creating on the page. So if I've, you know, is it a, is it a variation on an existing component? If I have this this uh, this component that by default has, let's say, um, 20 pixels of padding. Uh, and let's say, okay, it's a, a modal dialogue, right? So I've got this modal dialogue, but in this one place, uh, I'm kind of tight for space, so I want to drop the, the, the margin or padding down so that I have a little bit more room to fit everything in because I kind of got this, this fixed width uh, dialogue to, to work with. Um, but you know, once I've done that, then suddenly there might be these other cases where that actually makes sense to have as well. Um, and and then okay, that one off now needs to be used in all these different places. So um, I, I find that 
you know, one, create that thing. If it's a variation on an existing thing, document it. Um, it's going to be there. Um, and then if you decide to use it again, um, it's going to be very clear, right? And if you feel like, okay, well, I now need to create another variation, at some point what you're going to have is, you know, let's say if it, we were dealing with modal dialogues, okay, well, I started off with one, and then I, now I have like one, a variation on that. So I've got like two classes, and then I create another variation, and I've got three classes. Then I create another variation, and I've got four. If they're all together, you can see all the differences that I've created and now you have that opportunity to say, well, do I actually need four different ones? Is there a way for me to simplify this system uh, in order to, uh, you know, one, reduce the amount of code that I'm creating, the number of components that I need to maintain? Uh, and as a result of that, you can say, okay, you know what? Maybe I don't need all these different variations. These two are actually pretty close together, and I might not have seen that before because I was working just in this one little area um, that it feel, felt like I just needed to have that very special thing in this one place that, okay, well, I have four, but you know what? I can actually combine these two into one, and I'm back down to three. Yeah. Um, just kind of know, making like a compromise between the two. So, you know, this, it might not be exactly the same as it was before, but this kind of slightly tweaked version works in both places now instead of having to maintain two separate things sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. There's um, like, for example, at Yahoo, I remember doing an audit of the typography and, and thinking like, you know, how many font sizes could we possibly have? And, and actually, yeah, we had like a dozen different font sizes. And it's like, well, okay, you know, especially once you get up to some of the bigger sizes, are people going to notice the difference between 22 pixels and 24 pixels? Hey, probably not. Why don't we just stick with 24? Uh, and so we were able to reduce the, the number of, of font sizes we were using because of, you know, recognizing all the different cases that we had. And um, you know, where are people going to notice these differences? Um, and, uh, you know, humans are really good at identifying patterns. Uh, so I find that often a lot of the, uh, you know, trying to establish this consistency is about making those patterns obvious. And I think that's one of the, the great things about uh, you know, pattern libraries or style guides or, you know, all these uh, tools that are coming up to help uh, design and development teams understand what their design system looks like uh, is because it helps surface specific patterns. You know, a lot of the toolings like CSS stats and whatnot that, again, highlight all the different patterns that are being yeah. used that you can, oh, I can see this all in one place now. Now I understand why this is so complex, right? If I actually just go into an application and I look at an, a specific page, there's so much going on on that one page that it's difficult to highlight and pull out, you know, one specific thing that's going on and say, okay, well, actually that is the, um, that's out of sync with this other page, you know, like it's, it's hard to tell that. So being able to identify those patterns and, and, creating the process to be able to identify those problem uh, those those problems i think are very beneficial it makes me almost think like it would be so cool to have like some sort of dev tools extension or something that could detect all your different variations on the page and have like a slider that almost works like a gzip for the number of styles that you have like averaging things to reduce the number of total font sizes and kind of like being able to see in real time like the effects of uh kind of combining these things would be i don't know it's kind of a an interesting thing. I was going to say, um, it sounds like, uh, you know, what you're talking about with being able to find compromises between like things to be able to simplify uh, your design systems. It makes me think of the fact that like my favorite designers that I've ever had the opportunity to work with when doing web stuff are, are people who are able to design things that don't need to be pixel perfect to work. You know what I mean? Yes. I feel like that's like a really important quality when it comes to designing for the web that I don't, I don't know if it gets talked about enough. Yeah, it's uh, I think you're absolutely right on that. It's uh, for me, I believe in the fluidity of the web uh, and the, you know, the, because of that fluidity, you, you're going to see um, so many just slight variations in how things get rendered. You know, like it, it's not that people have this 
rigid environment to work within. And that can often be uh, overwhelming for a designer to have to work with. And uh, I remember when I first got into uh, web development back in 98, 99 and, and working with print designers where, you know, they'd give me the t- this design comp that was this 800 by 600 um, Photoshop doc. And I would ask like, okay, well, you know, where, uh, you know, how, how does this work when I resize the browse? And they're like, well, don't let them resize the browser. And I'm just like, I, that, that's not a thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I was like, well, put it in a pop-up window because pop-up windows at the time, you could, you know, restrict the height and width of, yeah. of a browser window. And, um, that's now when we look at the, the plethora of devices that we have, it's just not, uh, you know, you're, you're going upstream if you feel like you can, have that much control over the stuff that you're designing. Um, the, the more you just kind of let go, let things flow. Um, I, I think the the better, the, um, the, the better things will ultimately be. And you have actually a lot of freedom in the, the kind of work that you can do for the web. Just wanted to take another quick break to thank our second sponsor of the show, Rollbar. So one of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, of course, right? You know, either you rely on your users to report errors or you're digging through log files trying to figure out what went wrong or... Maybe you're hooked up to an existing tool and you got millions of alerts flooding your inbox all day long. Uh, Rollbar is like a full stack error monitoring solution. And with Rollbar, you get the context, insights, and control that you need to find and fix bugs faster with a lot less noise. So Rollbar is really easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less. It works with all major languages and frameworks, including Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, Node, iOS, you know, you get the picture. If you're a Laravel developer, like myself, there's actually a package that you can use that integrates with Rollbar really quickly. So Rollbar also integrates with a lot of different other tools, like it can send your errors to Slack or HipChat or create new issues in GitHub, Jira, and stuff like that. And uh, for full stack radio listeners, Rollbar actually has a special offer where if you sign up at rollbar.com slash full stack radio, you get access to their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So you get like 300,000 errors tracked for free. So give Rollbar a try. Head over to rollbar.com slash radio to try out the bootstrap plan. And thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring the show. I've seen you write in the past about uh, you have some pretty strong opinions on like responsive design in general on like true responsive design. And the way I understand that is like you're kind of not a fan of sort of like the bootstrap approach, for example, where they have like kind of arbitrary fixed widths to make it easier to kind of work with instead of having to make sure it a design is really the best it can possibly look at any specific device size. Uh, I'd really be interested in hearing you talk more about that. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, again, it's that people design for what they know. Uh, And so what a lot of people are designing for is the world of, okay, I've got my MacBook, I've got my iPhone, and I've got my iPad. And so they've got very specific dimensions that they understand how things work and will design for those dimensions. And the the promise is that there is actually a lot of variation. And that, you know, what we've seen, uh, even just in the last couple of years, is, um, you know, the iOS environment even is starting to fracture with a lot more variation in screen sizes. And something that Android has been dealing with for a number of years where, okay, you know, you have just such a variety of different uh, interfaces that, if you try to design for just three specific viewports, when you have something on these other devices, it's going to look wrong. Like either you're going to have way too much space, like you're going to have an app on a tablet that was designed for a phone and just either have way too much space around each individual component yeah. that things weren't really designed for that platform. And it feels weird. It feels out of place. And I mean, I've seen that with like the Twitter app and I go into the Twitter app on a tablet and for whatever reason, you've got this narrow column and then all this white space on either side. And I just kind of think that that's a lot of wasted space. Um, uh, that again, not to say that every pixel needs to be filled, but you know, I, I kind of want a better experience than um, than what I think a lot of companies feel that they can get away with. Um, you know, I, I think that there is an opportunity to, to build a uh, 
a, a cohesive, uh, well-designed experience that can work across all devices. And, um, you know, the, the work that we ended up doing at Shopify, I was really proud of what the, the, the team was able to do, both from the design and development perspective, to build something that, you know, you could load up on any device. And because of the way we built it, the way it was designed works well, I mean, in my opinion, works well across all devices, which is fantastic. Do you have any like um, specific things to share regarding that project that you you think people could learn from when it comes to trying to design uh, or build responsive designs that work as well as the Shopify admin one does? The uh, So the, I would say the two things that um, really made that project work, uh, one is to taking a component-based approach to design. So we weren't designing pages, we were designing components. And uh, a lot of that design work started, uh, you know, probably six months to a year before we even decided that we were going to go responsive. We d- we knew it was a thing that we eventually wanted to work towards. Um, so we just like, okay, let's keep that in mind. And so a lot of the design work um, had those considerations in already, which, which made it a lot easier once we actually got to the implementation stage. Uh, and then once we actually started building out, again, just for the desktop, but with responsive in mind, made, uh, you know, okay, we're building this component. What things do we have to kind of think about once we actually start moving down to smaller screens? How how do we want this thing to, to flow? And how are the individual components going to work? And um, recognizing, okay, you know, here's how we're going to solve these problems and, and why that's going to work. And then uh, once the the push to go responsive we said okay this is how we're going to do it we uh so this leads to the second thing that i think was hugely successful for us was taking a container query or an element query approach to yeah this is i was really interested in asking you about this actually so i'd love to hear you talk more about that it's uh you know unfortunately browsers uh do not actually give us a way to, it's not like, like media queries with media queries, we can create some CSS that, you know, based on the size of the viewport will allow us to create styles based on that. Uh, you know, when I say container queries or element queries, there is no browser spec right now that, uh, and certainly no browser implementation that allows us to pull that off. So unfortunately we have to use JavaScript, um, in order to do that. So, okay, we, we had to write our own uh, JavaScript. I mean, th- there are a number of uh, plugins out there, uh, polyfills and stuff like that, that uh, attempt to create a container query um, approach. Um, for our particular needs, uh, we needed to, to, to create our own. Uh, so we, we wrote our own container query uh, implementation that you know, essentially allows us to say, okay, this component this element on the page, when it has this much space available to it specifically, then apply these styles. Uh, and so uh, what the script did was essentially say, okay, based on these min and max widths, uh, apply this class under these conditions. Uh, and so we were able to write the extra styles uh, for that condition. And then we could say, okay, well, I've got this uh card that once it gets down to this screen, maybe it reduces the amount of margin around it. Maybe once it gets down to uh, the size of a phone, it's now actually full width um, so that we leave as much room as necessary for the actual content. Um, the the grid system within a card. You know, if I have something that is uh, two columns wide, once I get down to a small enough screen, that it goes down to a single column. Um, same thing with like sidebars and uh, tabs and whatnot. We were able to look at each component in isolation and figure out how that component should work when it only has that much space. And what that does is it allows us to move really quickly because uh, we can work on one component, figure out how it works, move on to the next one. Uh, whereas if you're trying to do things on a page by page basis, you know, something like Shopify had probably easily 100 pages. And if you're trying to figure out okay, I I might have solved the problem for this page, but then I move on to another page, which has essentially just a a recombination of the components that I already have on another page, but I need to figure out how that interaction is going to work on another page. Uh, And so you go through and and create more styles for that, uh, and it becomes this sort of complex 
environment that you have to go through and understand a hundred different pages in order to actually make changes. Whereas if you are dealing on a component basis, you know, I can work on that in isolation and uh, solve that problem and then move on to the next one really quickly. And that actually, uh, for us, allowed us to iterate uh, and go responsive really quickly. Uh, We actually launched, uh, I would say, probably, you know, when when we pulled the trigger to say, yes, we're going to go responsive to actually going responsive, um, probably about a month. Wow, that's that's actually amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So um, did you guys run into any... uh, like performance issues or anything with the that kind of component query or container query sort of approach? And did you end up landing on a solution that uh, you felt was really good? Or do you still feel like there's compromises that had to be made there that are unfortunate? Uh, a little bit. Um, a lot of it had to do with um, like, you know, we're uh, throttling uh, resize events for performance reasons. Um, and so what happens is that if you do end up resizing your browser. Sometimes you'll get a slight delay, you know, fractions of a second. Sure. Uh, that, uh, you know, in that, okay, I've resized the browser and then it'll take a, you know, um, two-tenths of a second for it to actually lock all the elements in place. Um, and for us, we felt like that was an acceptable uh, thing to have uh, because, for the most part, people don't do a lot of resizing. Yeah, I was going to say, um, like, it's sort of something that we don't think about much because as, like, developers, you're resizing the browser, like, all the time, <laughs> like, yeah, constantly. Yes. So you yes. sort of, like, have it baked into your head that that's a normal thing to do, like, subconsciously, I guess. You know, if you really think about it, of course, like, why would anyone be doing that? They're on the page to, like, accomplish some task, not to drag that corner around like we do all day long. <laughs> but, yes. uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, how often do people resize? Uh, you know, even if you have a phone and you're rotating it from uh, portrait to landscape, it's something that somebody might look at it in portrait and say, oh, you know what, I don't have quite enough room. I want to move to landscape, uh, make the changes that they want and resize back. And that, that small sort of re-render, uh, that fraction of a second was for us an unacceptable thing. And, um, you know, thankfully, we, we didn't really get any complaints after we, we launched that, which was good. Nice. What sort of, um, uh, I guess, kind of like API were you guys able to come up with for the container query stuff? Did you land on something that you were pretty happy with as far as like um, how you would kind of declare what the, the different, you know, changes should be for a specific component at specific sizes? Was it done in like the HTML or is it done in the CSS? Or I've seen like, for example... The element query library that I've looked at the most seems to have like um is like a declarative approach where you would do it in like the HTML with like a some sort of tag that um triggers you know different classes based on the on the value of it. So I'm interested in hearing about how other people have kind of approached it and what sort of solution they landed on as far as how you actually work with it. Yeah, so a lot of um, what we were, uh, you know, our decision process in deciding whether or not to use an existing script or um, come up with our own solution had to do with technical constraints. So, yeah, you know, if we could have declared the media queries, uh, or in this case, our container queries in the CSS, that would have been the most ideal situation. Unfortunately, our uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, our CSS is served up over a CDN, uh, which means it's on a separate domain than the actual application. Uh, so you have to deal with um, you know the cores, um, you know the cross-origin request, uh, and uh, because of those restrictions, because of the way we had things set up, uh, we weren't able to uh, read the CSS file to actually make. Uh, the query, the sort of the definition of the queries there. So, okay, that meant any of the CSS-based implementations we couldn't use. They were just by default out the window. Uh, so that left us with HTML or JavaScript. Now, the concerns that we had with putting it in the HTML was that you know people would have to be aware of how the implementation works. Um, so we didn't have uh, at the time, a uh, an API-like interface for our HTML. Uh, in other words, you know, you couldn't just say, please spit me out an input, and it would also include all of these things, including 
the media queries. If you were building a new page, you had a new uh, template file, and you had to copy and paste uh, the components from other pages or from the documentation into the page that you were on. Uh, and that meant that any of the media queries uh, would have to be defined multiple times across the entire site, hopefully correct. If we ever wanted to make changes, we would have to go through all the templates to make those changes. So, you know, if, if we're doing, you know, the changes in, in Rails or whatever, that just, it felt like it was opening up a, an opportunity for errors, right? Yeah. That, that people would make mistakes in either forgetting to put the stuff in or making it more difficult for us to make changes moving forward. Uh, so, you know, okay, we've eliminated CSS, we've eliminated HTML. Well, that left us with JavaScript, which is where we ended up actually making our declaration. Uh, so we had a, a JSON object that declares, okay, first it had what is the the component that we want to have as a media query. So we, we define that component via class name to say, okay, well, we've got, you know, dot tabs. This is what's going to happen with tabs. Uh, and then uh, because of our needs, um, the script was fairly simplistic in the sense that it did min width and max width, and that's it. So there's no uh, height, there's no pixel density, there's none of the sort of other things that media queries can do. Uh, we just needed to handle uh, min and max width. Yeah. Um, so those uh, were specific properties that were declared within the the JSON file. Uh, and then lastly was, what is the class that we actually want to apply to the element when those conditions are true? Um, and so, you know, basically on load or whenever new content is injected in the page or whenever the browser was resized, it would run the script to say, go through, find these specific elements, are the conditions valid? Yes, include that CS, that that class. If it's not, remove that class, and that's all it does. Awesome, yeah, it's really interesting stuff. It's actually really um, when you when you first discover the need for like a container query, you realize very fast how media queries, uh, in comparison, are so much less useful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's almost like a, a horrible mistake that someone decided to to do it that way. Uh, you know what I mean? Because it would be such an amazing thing to have like native support for in the browser for all the reasons that you've said. And it's something that I haven't had the opportunity to play with on a real project yet, but it's really interesting for me to hear from you that you guys were using it at Shopify and that it's um, kind of like a mainstream thing that, you know, you can feel comfortable doing and not feel like you're doing some really wacky thing that no one else is doing that has really bad performance or has all these other concerns. So uh, it's exciting for me to hear that it's more common than I thought and makes me feel more comfortable uh, giving it a try uh, down the road. So, Yeah, I've seen uh, Scott Gell uh, on Twitter. He has mentioned container queries on a number of occasions and has also commented on if container queries were a thing, that he may never use media queries uh, ever again. And, and I kind of feel like I'm in the same boat. Um, and when I think of like sort of the evolution of web development, you know, if I picture what things are going to look like five years from now, so, you know, the, the two technologies that I think um, would possibly dramatically change how we build a web page, uh, one of those would be container queries, um, and the other one would be web components. So I think with those two things, uh, being possible, actually, there, you know, the way I build a web page uh, would be a lot different. I probably wouldn't use media queries, and I would be able to create these reusable components um, and then define, okay, well, the conditions under which this web component behaves, and be able to do some really creative things with that. Uh, you know, I, I look forward to. Uh, you know, being able to develop with those kind of things. Awesome. So would you say like the container query thing is kind of like a default part of your tool set these days that, you know, you have no problem uh, reaching for if it's going to, you know, simplify the thing that you're trying to get done? Uh, I, it's going to still depend on the kind of product that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. For uh, Shopify, uh, it was a JavaScript-based application. So saying, okay, we, we needed to include a JavaScript-based solution for doing these kind of media queries, absolutely fantastic. Um, same thing with Xero. Um, you know, the, uh, the software would have a similar implementation. W whereas if I'm working on, let's say, a marketing site where actually uh, I'm building something with 
that needs to be static, that needs to be able to work on devices without JavaScript, then I'm going to be uh, a lot more concerned. And actually, I probably wouldn't use um, container queries under those conditions or, or use them very judiciously. I'm going to be um, more likely to use media queries under those situations, which in my experience and in a lot of the examples that I've seen out there as well, most marketing sites work well with media queries. Just the, the way the pages are designed and implemented, media queries can be used uh, with uh, with without a lot of concern as far as like, okay, you know, you may still have components, but those components are usually done in a very um, sort of given system. So for example, okay, let's say you have an image over a block of text and you have three across. Well, that that three across implementation, you know, is kind of this cohesive block that you can design for. Uh, and so when you're developing the responsiveness for that, that block is a full width. It's not necessarily within a more complex layout. And, and as a result of that, a media query actually works really well. You can say, okay, this component, um, even though it's under these conditions, it's a very specific sort of art-directed direction and, and, and media queries would work just fine there. Awesome. Yeah, it kind of sounds like the heuristic that I'm taking away uh, from what you've been saying here is like, don't make container queries the reason that your site needs JavaScript. Yes. Yeah. So if you're using, you know, if your site needs JavaScript for any other reason, then go nuts. But uh, yes. <laughs> if, if, if your site works perfectly fine without JavaScript and now you're going to force someone to require JavaScript just to be able to do this, then, you know, then it's a trade-off worth thinking harder about, I guess. I think it also depends. Like, I mean, I say web applications, but I mean, that line between website and web application is, uh, it's a gradient. Um, there's no uh, sort of like definitive line between that. Um, it, it is going to depend on the kind of uh, website or web application that you're building, depending on the kind of layouts that you're building. Uh, so it just so happens that you know the last uh, two products that I worked on had uh, a lot of complexity to their interface, but it, it is quite possible that even though you have a JavaScript-based application, um, if you've got a fairly straightforward interface, eh, you know what, maybe container queries aren't the thing. Um, I... I I don't come into projects dogmatically. Um, I pick the right tool for the problem that you're solving. Um, with that said, container queries are pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> so if you have the opportunity uh, and you've built things in a component-based way, um, I think they're a natural fit. Awesome. Well, maybe it's a good time to uh, start wrapping things up. Is there anything that you wanted to uh, to plug or anything before we go? Or what's the best way for people to keep up with kind of some of the new stuff that you're working on? Uh, well, they can always follow me on Twitter at SnookCA, uh, which uh, just happens to also uh, mirror my own website, snook.ca, uh, which is my blog, which I have actually been writing a lot more on this, uh, this year, which is fantastic. Uh, and so pretty much everything that I do will be posted in one of those two places. Awesome, man. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on and chatting to me about this stuff. Thank you very much. I have enjoyed it. If you're interested in show notes for this episode, they can be found at fullstackradio.com slash 43. Be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes if you enjoyed it. If you have any comments, either leave them on the website, reach out to me on Twitter, or reach out to me via email. And thanks as always to Lara Cass and Rollbar for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.